Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patient Talk Podcast, delivered to you by Omni Health Insights. In this episode, recorded in partnership with UChicago Medicine, I'll be chatting with Dr. Nishant Agrawal. He's Professor of Surgery, Chief Section of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and Director, Head and Neck Surgical Oncology at UChicago Medicine. Our conversation came soon after World Cancer Day, and I wanted to understand better the latest head and neck cancer treatments and technologies, and also if any were impacted by COVID-19. I want to start by referencing a fact, but it was World Cancer Day earlier this month. So it was obviously observed on the 4th of February, and this year's observance was dedicated to the courage and achievements of people living with cancer and their families. And with that in mind, and as part of my research, I was particularly fascinated to read a patient's story on your website, on University of Chicago Medicine website, about an award-winning chef who has thrived since his original cancer diagnosis. So I'm going to share a bit about his story with listeners. I think it's quite powerful. So he was a young chef. He's only 33 and he discovered a painful spot on his tongue, but it was uh, stage four cancer, which must have been devastating. And so he traveled the country, the entire country, looking for the best treatment available and was left uh, disappointed at each point. He was told repeatedly that uh, invasive surgery was recommended, but involved the removal of 70% of his tongue, which must have been an awful thing to hear, especially so considering he was a a promising chef. But in this instance at University of Chicago Medicine, and I must add that um, he had a lot of uh, support from his business partner, he was told differently. And so the patient signed up for chemotherapy and radiation with surgery as a final resort. And so he received his treatment and uh, during his treatment, and, and this really blows my mind, he continued to work 16 hour days. So he continued to work long hours during this grueling treatment. And I said the word grueling because it's, it's on your website. And when he was told that he was cancer-free, and a few months later, having been told he was cancer-free, he was named the best chef in America. Not only that, he won a Michelin three-star award for his restaurant in Chicago. I think the only restaurant in Chicago with such a, an accolade. And this just blows my mind. We talk a lot about resilience these days in a pandemic, but in this instance, there's a young patient, a promising young chef, who traveled the country looking for the best treatment, was disappointed every time, and when he found the treatment he was looking for, and he soldiered on through this difficult treatment, I imagine. And at the end of it, he was named a top chef. I mean, it's, it's just incredible, an incredible story. So I guess my first question is, with a surgery often a first-line treatment option available, what makes you different? Why did you recommend a different approach? And how is a patient's experience throughout these treatments? I mean, if, uh, if a word used was grueling, what does that mean in practice? Yeah, Matt, so, you know, Grant Ackett's himself and his story and his cancer journey is truly an inspiration for all of us. And I just want to provide context uh, in regards to head and neck cancer. So there are about 650,000 cases of head and neck cancer in the world and over 300,000 deaths. And the United States, we have about 50 to 60,000 head and neck cancers annually. So when Grant presented at stage four, the standard approach to this is 
removing the majority of the tongue, um, removing lymph nodes, and followed by radiation and or chemoradiation. But, you know, I think our approach is different because as we try to make progress with cancer and its management, we shouldn't really accept the status quo and we should try to do better. And I think that's what the head neck oncology team at UChicago has done, tried to think outside the box. We've seen similar things in other sites of the head neck cancer where the standard approach to laryngeal cancer or voice box cancer in advanced stages will be to remove it. But we had studies to support that maybe we can save it with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So why wouldn't this be an extension to the tongue and oral cavity cancers? So this was some of the thought process behind this sort of novel approach to treating advanced stage oral cavity or mouth cancers. You know, it's a bit disruptive and not entirely without some controversy. And the controversy is more related to some of the potential complications related to radiating cancers in the mouth and one specific thing called osteoradionecrosis, which is basically the bone, the jawbone being affected by the radiation and, and making it unhealthy. So, but yeah, Grant went across the country with very similar recommendations of pretty significant surgery uh, removing the majority of his tongue, which was not acceptable to him. So at UChicago, he underwent a novel and different approach, starting with chemotherapy and then followed by chemoradiation without surgery. I mean, he's very public with the story and it's all over the media and the internet. He's thriving and again, an inspiration to us. Are there any new treatments available to, uh, to help the patient's experience? You know, we're looking at in the years ahead, for instance, potentially better treatments that will allow patients more comfort during the course of their cancer? So for early stage cancer, stage one and two for head and neck cancer, our treatments tend to be more limited and better tolerated. And this is across the world. It's really with the advanced stage um, cancers where this word grueling really sort of comes to surface where the treatment does become very grueling. And this is also across the world with this combination of surgery, chemotherapy, and or radiation therapy. So we have to do better as a field and try to come up with strategies to minimize the toxicity related to the cancer and its treatment, reduce the morbidity and the mortality while maintaining our outcomes and quality of life. So there's been progress at many levels with radiation therapy, where now it's IMRT or intensity modulated radiation therapy and much more contoured. So there's less bystander effects. The chemotherapy agents and doses um, are being investigated and improved, um, where we do have some options for targeted therapy and also immunotherapy. And then surgeries also come a long way where we are able to maintain function and or restore function and cosmesis, all of this while trying to eliminate the cancer. 
In terms of specifics that you discussed, AI and machine learning, these are evolving in cancer in general and including head and neck cancer. There's huge potential of these things making impact in the way we manage cancer. They haven't been clinically applied right now. They're still being investigated, but they're being investigated at many levels, including radiomics, using pathology and AI, and then in terms of management and the management algorithm. And this is, again, across cancer, including head and neck cancer. You mentioned surgery just now. What new methods are you using in surgery? in the treatment of uh, cancer patients. So I'm hearing a lot about robotics, for instance, and did a little bit of research into this area. And of course, the anatomy of a head and a neck and, and, and the, uh, the throat is very complex, requiring a lot of precision. So would you be able to elaborate more on the techniques involved? Sure. In many ways, everything we do, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, I hope in 50 years, people say, why were you guys doing such terrible things? And I hope everything continues to evolve and really reduce the toxicity of everything. In terms of surgery specifically, the biggest change for head and neck cancer has been robotic surgery, where we are able to use the robot to access difficult to reach areas. And that's generally not the mouth, but in the back of the throat in an area called the oropharynx, hypopharynx, and larynx. So more of the throat and voice box area. The mouth, we still use sort of open surgery and, and are able to get to most tumors just through an open mouth approach. But the robot has really revolutionized our field for the oropharynx and to a lesser degree, the larynx and hypopharynx. So the oropharynx has an increasing incidence of head and neck cancers, mainly driven by human papillomavirus or HPV, um, where in the past we would do pretty dramatic surgery of splitting the jaw, getting access to the tumor, and then rewiring or replating the jaw. Now we can simply access this through the mouth and use a robot to get to the back of the tongue or the side tonsils called the palatine tonsils and resect these tumors with fairly relatively less morbidity. So it's been a game changer. And the laryngeal cancers also have come a long way where in the past decades, we used to do a lot of procedure called the total laryngectomy, which is remove the uh, voice box for advanced stage cancers. And now we treat them with alternative approaches like chemo radiation, but can also treat some of the earlier stage laryngeal cancers with minimally invasive microsurgery, using specific lasers and also limited fields of radiation. So really, I think as a field, we've made a lot of progress, but we still have to continue to do better. It does sound pretty incredible to me, really, looking at the, uh, the images and the video of some of these robotics and, and, and the laser you know, surgery. It's almost like this stuff in science fiction. And uh, I don't suppose many people know about this. You know, when, when we think of surgery, we still think of people on gowns and scalpels but you know, none of this fancy yeah, machinery. Where do you see this evolving in the years ahead? So I want in a few decades to say that the guys in 2021 were doing 
barbaric things. I want everything to be refined, including surgery, radiation, and chemo, and actually come up with completely novel ways of treating cancer, and in many ways preventing cancer or treating them at very, very early stages where there is much less morbidity, maintaining quality of life, decreased cost. I think all of these things will get refined. The surgery will be finer. So instead of getting a centimeter margins around tumors, maybe we can tolerate a millimeter so we don't have to take away as much tissue because now we're better with molecular margins or adjuvant treatment. So, you know, maybe our scalpel is just refined further and dictated at the molecular level. And it's a little bit science fiction, but, you know, I think the things we're doing now is science fiction 100 years ago. It's really an amazing time to be in medicine and helping patients with cancer. And I can't wait to see what happens in the next few decades. It certainly does seem like an amazing time. And and I guess, you know, there's another reason accounting for that, which is the pandemic, obviously. We have to mention COVID. Seeing as we're talking about head and neck cancers and COVID effects, the nose and the throat and the lungs and and the mouth, what kind of impacts are you seeing on cancer patients? Yeah, Matt, in general, you know, the pandemic and COVID has impacted and disrupted everyone's lives, including our cancer patients and their families. And early on, there was a lot of mixed evidence about what to do and the delays that would occur because things were shutting down. No one really knew the risk factors for the spread of the virus and any potential risk to patients with cancer. So at the early onset of the pandemic, things were on hold for a little while and there were delays and patients coming to our clinics and hospitals and then changes in the way our societies recommend them managing the patient, where as you sort of alluded to, in the head and neck area is a high risk for COVID transmission. We were termed, our procedures were aerosol generating procedures, so high risk transmission. This is all early data. I think things have settled down and it may not be as high risk as everyone initially thought in March 2020. And so this continues to evolve. And right now we're back to sort of normal, at least in the United States, where our patients are now again feeling comfortable and safe and coming to us. Some of it is more advanced stages than we would normally see. So I think there is some fear still out in the community and some delays. But in general, I think we're sort of back to where we were. And even our management now has sort of gone back to sort of our normal recommendations outside of the pandemic. So everyone's been talking about telemedicine or virtual care over the uh, pandemic. Did you try this as as an approach to speaking to cancer patients? So the pandemic changed everything for everyone. That's including healthcare workers. So we employ telemedicine very early and this was done across the world. And I think it's been very successful in accessing patients and their families um, who did have challenges and barriers for multiple reasons of coming in. At least you have some information from patients and then can make dynamic decisions relatively quickly instead of things being delayed by months. So telehealth has been very effective for us in initially valuing patients, following patients, following patients post-operatively. And, you know, I really hope it's something that's going to be supported by 
different healthcare organizations, different insurance companies, and governments across the world. I think it is the wave of the future. It is the right thing for patients, and it improves access for everyone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Just moving on now from the uh, pandemic, and I I guess taking a big step back, let's uh, talk about lifestyle factors and the causes of these cancers. So I have a uh, statistic here, which is uh, 85% of head and neck diagnoses are linked to tobacco use. Is that still the case? And uh, I'm guessing that tobacco use is probably on on a way down now. Few people are smoking, although shisha smoking is still quite prevalent where I am in this uh, part of the world. Can we expect to see head and neck cancers come down in, in the future? The major risk factors for head and neck cancer are tobacco, which is by far the greatest risk, which increases the risk of developing head and neck cancer probably in the 5 to 25 folds, a very significant risk factor. Um, Other risk factors are alcohol use. Um, There are a couple of viruses called Epstein-Barr virus, and then that's related to to nasopharyngeal cancer, and then HPV or human papillomavirus, which is related to oropharyngeal cancer. So those are the major risk factors for head and neck cancer. Betel nut, sorry, is another one in certain Southeast Asian countries, which is also modified by risk factor. So shisha or water pipe smoking, it's a little bit unclear. It is a tobacco product, so the risk is likely increased. But we don't know the impact of it. There's definitely an association with shisha smoking or water pipe smoking and head and neck cancer. To what degree is still unclear. The data is a little bit mixed. But in general, a lot of these things are modifiable. So like I mentioned, tobacco, alcohol, betel nut, and let's say shisha are entirely preventable. So I would say it's best to try to refrain from some of these things that can prevent the onset of cancer. EBV is very prevalent in Asia, in certain areas of Asia. There's no known vaccine. So there's no easy way of preventing EBV-associated nasopharyngeal cancer, but there's a lot of great progress with early detection of nasopharyngeal cancer in Asia. Human papillomavirus has a very effective vaccine, which prevents the infection and its associated cancers, and would encourage everyone who's eligible to get the vaccine. In the United States, the age of vaccination has changed over the last few years, and now it's men and women less than 45 years of age. So really, I think a lot of the risk factors for head and neck cancer are modifiable or preventable, and we should do everything we can. You know, we talked about treatment and trying to de-intensify treatment. For HPV-related cancers, the prognosis is much, much better for head and neck cancers related to HPV, where for advanced disease, which is spread to lymph nodes, the survival is at least 80 to 85%. So there's a lot of interest in the field to try to reduce the toxicity of its treatment while maintaining the survival, where really the standard has become sort of these things, what we call de-escalation clinical trials, trying to lessen the treatment while maintaining the outcomes. And there's multiple, multiple ways of doing that. And UChicago, we have a way that we've been doing for about over a decade now with survival of about 95% using chemotherapy 
as an indicator of how aggressive the tumor is and then adjusting our and modifying our treatment based on the response to chemotherapy, whether it's surgery then or radiation or a lower dose of chemoradiation or for the rare patients who don't respond well the full dose of chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Outcomes have been amazing on this with actually better survival than sort of the standard treatment with much less morbidity and maintaining the long-term quality of life. That's really interesting. I certainly learned a lot from that answer. I was quite interested to uh, to hear about uh, beetle nuts. I, I used to see quite a lot of consumption of that in Southeast Asia. I lived there for a number of years. And actually on that note, to what degree is air pollution a factor? Because you know, that's something that's always bugged me. I, you know, I've lived in very, uh, let's say, uh, polluted environments. And uh, is this an issue or, uh, you know, is there any link? Yeah, so air pollution definitely impacts a lot of physiologic things in our body, more specifically our lungs. In terms of its influence on cancer, there's definitely certain carcinogens in air and air pollution, which increase the risk of cancer. Specifically related to head and neck cancer, it's not as well known. There may be some sort of occupational and air pollution exposure, which increase risk of certain types of cancers, like the sinonasal cancers. But really, I think it's still unclear of the exact impact. But we know the impact on lung health is very, very significant and deleterious in many ways as bad or sometimes worse than even cancer. So we should try to clean our air. Thanks once again to Dr. Agrawal from UChicago Medicine. If you're interested in finding out more, please visit www.uchicagomedicine.org slash cancer. You can also read our oncology-related articles at insights.omnia-health.com slash medical specialities slash oncology. Mm-hmm.